1986, nuclear reactor four at the Chernobyl power complex experienced a catastrophic meltdown as the result of a flawed reactor design and a series of mistakes made by inadequately trained personnel. This resulted in the largest uncontrolled radioactive release into the environment ever recorded for any civilian operation. The radioactivity exposure will have lasting consequences, but is all lost for this area of Ukraine. Should we really wall off an entire area and hope that nature takes its course and the land recovers? Will this area ever be habitable again, or is there no escaping the past? Let's find out in today's episode of Prism of the Past. Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode. Today, I'm going to be talking about what happened at Chernobyl. I've discussed Three Mile Island and other nuclear incidents before, and if you can't really mention nuclear disasters without having Chernobyl come to mind, so I figured I really did have to cover Chernobyl, even if just once. I'm sure many of you tuning in weren't even born when the Chernobyl disaster happened in 1986, but considering how far back some of these prism of the past topics get, this one honestly feels pretty recent. So let's get into it. To begin with, the Chernobyl power complex lay about 130 kilometers north of Kiev, Ukraine. It consisted of four nuclear reactors. The first two were constructed between 1970 and 1977, whereas units three and four were completed in 1983. Two more reactors were under construction at the time of the incident. This surprised me because that means this nuclear incident took place within just a few years of these four units being finished. This already is a huge red flag pointing to an issue with the construction of the units. This area of Ukraine itself has been described as a Belarusian type woodland area with a low population density. Anywhere between 115,000 to 135,000 people lived within a 30 kilometer radius of the power plant, 50,000 of them whom lived in Pripyat. And that is the city that was about three kilometers from Chernobyl. And when you see all these urban explorers going to like the abandoned Chernobyl towns or whatever, it's usually Pripyat that they go to. In other words, Even though there may not have been a lot of people nearby, there were plenty of people in the surrounding areas that could be potentially exposed. Now, these nuclear reactors were of an RBMK design. As the World Nuclear Association explains, the RBMK-1000 is a Soviet-designed and built graphite-moderated pressure tube using slightly enriched uranium dioxide fuel. It is a boiling light water reactor with two loops feeding steam directly to the turbines without an intervening heat exchanger. Water pumped to the bottom of the fuel channels boils as it progresses up to the pressure tubes producing steam. There are four main coolant circulating pumps, one of which is always on standby and various safety systems as a part of the reactor design. The RBMK reactor also possesses a positive void coefficient where an increase in steam bubbles is accompanied by an increase in core reactivity. So to put it very, very simply, nuclear power plants are really like fancy steam engines. Boiled water turns to steam, which spins a turbine, which then generates power in a steam engine. In a nuclear reactor, the heat is caused by fission or the splitting of uranium, and that's what boils the water. The Chernobyl plant was a high power channel type reactor that used water to both cool the core and generate steam for its reactions crucially. Most of Chernobyl's control rods were made of boron tipped with graphite. The control rod slipped into the reactor to slow reactivity. The boron slowed the reactions down, but the graphite tips initially increased the rate of fission. This was a design flaw and one of the main factors that caused the explosion. In some man-made disasters, the cause has been a series of falling standards. In this one, an inherent design flaw played a massive contributing role. Of course, mistakes by plant operators and a lack of safety culture were also factors, but this particular error almost made the Chernobyl disaster destined to happen. 
I tried to figure out what specifically set off this catastrophe in the first place and found one New York Times article from 1986 that describes the events. Apparently Moscow had been warned about reactor design defects nine years before the disaster. The accident that attributed almost entirely to human errors, but the chairman of the Central Electricity Generating Board, Lord Marshall states that in truth, the designers of Chernobyl gave the operators too difficult a task. He listed seven deficiencies in the Chernobyl unit discovered in 1977 when the British were deciding to build reactors with a similar design. The British used graphite reactors, but cooled them with inert gas, not water, and warned the Soviets of their design flaws. The largest problem was the previously mentioned positive void coefficient, unique to the Russian RBMK reactors. Water cools the core and slows the reaction down, but when water turns to steam, it can't do either of these things and it becomes bubbles or voids. The ratio of water to steam is the void coefficient, and in many nuclear reactors, there's more steam, meaning less reactivity. For the RBMK reactors, it's the opposite, meaning there's a higher reactivity. When there's more steam, it makes the nuclear fission more efficient and speeds it up, equaling more heat. More heat boils away the water faster, leading to more and more steam, setting a potentially dangerous cycle in motion. The point here is to say that the people at the Chernobyl plant were warned. Their large variation in neutron levels, the fact that the massive graphite core ran extremely hot, hotter than the fuel itself, and the weak structure were all points brought to their attention, but they did not take it seriously. And all of these events and lack of action is what led to the events that occurred in 1986. According to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, a sudden surge of power during a reactor systems test destroyed Unit 4 of the nuclear power station at Chernobyl, Ukraine. This was April 26, 1986. There have been quite a few documentaries about Chernobyl itself and what happened there, but what can generally be agreed on is that safety protocols were violated. The Unit 4 reactor was supposed to be shut down for routine maintenance on April 25th. And again, this test, which was scheduled for April 25th, the day before the event, was delayed for 10 hours by power grid officials. This meant that the night shift staff had to conduct it, something they were not trained to do. To perform the test, the reactor had to be put in a low power state. A low power state on an RBMK reactor isn't like putting your computer in sleep mode as CNET explains. It can't be returned to its usual power state quickly. However, the control room at Chernobyl attempted to do exactly that. The core temperature dropped so much, it stopped boiling water away and producing steam. Once the plant workers shut down the reactor at 1.23 a.m., water was no longer pumped into the core. The safety test shut down the reactor, the remaining water boiled away. Therefore, there was more steam. More steam results in higher reactivity. The core became, as they put it, a giant kid's ball pit in an earthquake with neutrons bouncing around the chamber and constantly colliding with one another. The emergency stop button should have decreased the reaction, but because the control rod's graphite tips, it caused the power to spike even more. This wasn't a nuclear reaction, but a steam explosion that caused by the massive buildup of pressure. Air slipped into the reactor hall, igniting a second explosion that terminated nuclear reactions in the core and left a hole in the Chernobyl reactor building. Two workers died as a result of these explosions. One body was never recovered and the second died in the hospital a few hours later. Radioactive debris of fuel and reactor components rained over the area while fire spread from the building that held reactor four to other nearby buildings. Toxic fumes and dust were carried away on the wind, and though the initial fire was extinguished a few hours later at 5 a.m., the resulting graphite-fueled fire took 10 days and 250 firefighters to extinguish. Toxic emissions continued to be pumped into the atmosphere for an additional 10 days. Fires broke out in the Unit 4 building and the adjacent turbine hall. 14 firemen arrived on the scene at 1.28 a.m., and dozens more arrived as reinforcements until about four. 
They received the highest radiation exposures, and by the end of July, six firemen and a further 22 plant staff died of acute radiation poisoning. According to Live Science, evacuations of Pripyat commenced on April 27th, about 36 hours after the accident had occurred. By that time, many residents were already complaining about vomiting, headaches, and other signs of radiation sickness. Officials closed off an 18-mile area around the plant by May 14, evacuating another 116,000 residents. Within the next few years, 220,000 more residents were advised to move to less contaminated areas, according to the World Nuclear Association. Many residents believed they were coming back after a few days, so they left personal belongings behind. Some Ukrainian families heard about the danger of radiation from friends and families and fled the area of their own accord. Little information about radiation was released from the government too. In April and May of 1986, 50 miles away in a wool processing plant in Chernihiv, northern Ukraine, workers were suffering from nosebleeds, dizziness, and nausea. Investigators discovered radiation levels in the factory of up to 180 millisieverts per hour. In other words, these workers were exceeding the safe annual dose of radiation in less than a minute. Almost 300 women were given liquidator status, which was normally reserved for those who had documented exposure during the early days of cleanup after the accident. While researching, I was genuinely surprised at how little information there seemed to be about the government's response to all of this. Well, by that, I mean how little the government did. Plenty of people had some choice words for their reaction. One of the responders to the disaster apparently stated they believed they were responding to an electrical fire. Historians estimate that over 600 pilots risked exposing themselves to dangerous levels of radiation by dumping sand, clay, lead, and concrete on reactor four to seal it off. Other sources add that the attitude of higher ups was consistently questionable even before the accident. Not long before Chernobyl, Ivanov, chief of production department responsible for everything done by operation personnel, justified the increasingly frequent emergency situations at power plants. He stated, quote, not a single nuclear reactor power plant fully adheres to the operation regulations. It is indeed impossible, end quote. This source, the Chernobyl Notebook, also says that the firemen were there without any respirators or protective clothing. They weren't warned what they were actually getting into. The first hours and even the first day after the accident, no one seemed to understand that the reactor exploded and there'd been a nuclear emission into the atmosphere. The message was simply that an explosion and fire took place and there wasn't any word about the radiation. Apparently, the general secretary of the Communist Party, Mikhail Gorbachev, saw no need to awaken other members of the Soviet leadership or interrupt their weekend by calling an emergency session. When the deputy head of the Soviet government, Boris Sherbina, did arrive in Ukraine, it was 18 hours after the explosion and very little had been done. He suggested using water to stop the nuclear fire, but the commission explained to him that this would make matters worse. After 9 p.m., while they were thinking, three powerful explosions illuminated the sky above the reactor. They were told to evacuate immediately. I told him that children were running in the streets, people were hanging laundered linens out to dry, and the atmosphere was radioactive. However, 1963 government regulations stated that it was not necessary to evacuate until the radiation dose accumulated to the 75 Rentgen mark. Rentgens are a unit of radiation and citizens in the area may have been intaking about 4.5 Rentgens per day. Yet because the threshold hasn't been met, the commission's senior medical officer didn't want to order an evacuation. While police and military were wearing respirators and gas masks, children coming home from school were simply given iodine tablets and advised to stay indoors. It was almost exactly a full 24 hours later at 1 a.m. on April 27th when local officials received an order to prepare citizens for evacuation. For another 12 hours, citizens remained in the dark. Radiation levels that according to Soviet laws should have triggered an automatic public warning were recorded and yet ignored. 
Children from the area like Sofia Moskalenko had spoken out in recent years as well and said how party officials assured her and her family that the fire in Chernobyl was under control. But whispers contradicted the news and more windows remained closed. She said in a Vox 2019 interview that, through her connections with black market traders known as speculants, our neighbor Irene produced a Geiger counter, a device used to detect radiation and hauled it home one night. We hovered its wand over milk, eggs, bread. Everything crackled, contaminated with radiation. We wondered out loud if the device was defective. Irene had to return the counter the next day, but its crackle stayed in mind, a soundtrack to my worries. We will get into some of the lasting consequences of this incident, but first I do wanna spend some time talking about the responders and how they were treated. But before we jump into that, I'm gonna take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor. Maybe you've got back-to-back meetings, errands to run or chores to get taken care of. So what's the secret to clearing everything on your to-do list? Well, maybe it's a little help from DoorDash. You can get dinner, household essentials, and everything on your grocery list delivered. Maybe you're cooking one of your favorites tonight, but unfortunately you've forgotten a key ingredient. For me, it's typically garlic. And by forgetting it, I mean, I never buy enough garlic. So DoorDash is there to quickly get someone to get to the store for me, deliver the garlic so that I can keep cooking. Along with the restaurants you love, you can now get groceries and other essentials delivered with DoorDash. Get drinks, snacks, and other household items in under an hour. And with over 300,000 partners, you can support your neighborhood go-tos or choose from your favorite national chains. And for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on your first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code PRISM. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the app store and enter code PRISM. Don't forget that's code PRISM for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change, terms apply. in the honor and for the memory of those who had finished today this inhumanely difficult a special blend of barda, slop, which binded radioactive dust. Today, they were a couple of hours late and from the top for five minutes, I was able to Chernobyl 3828 is a 30-minute documentary about the 3,828 people who risked and in some cases sacrificed their lives to clear dangerous and contaminated areas. There are far more people who risk their lives. This documentary just focuses on the rooftop clearing exclusively. And if you have the 30 minutes in a day, I highly recommend you check it out. It's available on YouTube. Anyway, it's explained that many of the people that were doing the cleanup were actually volunteers. They were given a threshold of how much radiation they were allowed to take in, and then after that, they weren't permitted to come back. However, many of these brave volunteers insisted on working because they knew that if they were made to leave, a new inexperienced recruit would have to take their place. Many remote-controlled robots and machines were employed to clean up. Whenever a robot was unable to do its job, a mass of people had to take its place. The civil general in charge felt defeated as a person whenever people needed to work on the roofs in these dangerous high-radiation areas. Even though that general was awarded the hero of socialist labor later, he never wore it. The men that worked the sites were sent in in two minute shifts to shovel graphite and how by transporting them there, he feels like he was sending people to their death. Those two minutes, he says, lasted a quarter century to him and he can never forget them. On a personal note, what really got me here was how utterly depressing and helpless the entire situation seemed. Endlessly sending out person after person to risk their lives and health, shortening their lifespan, all because of design flaws that people ignored from the onset. 
In the weeks and months that followed the disaster, hundreds of thousands of firefighters, engineers, civil and military personnel were tasked with taking part in the cleanup. They became known as liquidators. One source states there were 800,000. The BBC reports indicate there was many as 830,000, while another says that official registries claim only 600,000 were granted this liquidator status. Most of them were between the ages of 18 to 22. It's not known how many are still alive, but more than 90% of them had radiation-induced health problems such as thyroid cancer, heart disease, and respiratory and digestive problems. Many scientists say not all of these health problems can be attributed to radiation, but there's no doubt that these men suffered and many are still suffering after this disaster. There is evidence that authorities were not honest with people without a doubt. A report by members of the Russian Academy of Science indicate that as many as 15% of these liquidators died by 2005. Keeping in mind how young these cleaners were, to have 112,000 to 125,000 pass away within 20 years is devastating. But for the record, many figures in this report have been largely disputed. Ukrainian authorities kept a registry of their own, and they claim that in 2015, there were 3,118,988 Ukrainian cleanup workers on the database. Although according to a recent report by the National Research Center for Radiation Medicine in Ukraine, 6,551, 453 cleanup workers were examined for radiation exposure. Mortality rates in contaminated areas are also far higher than the rest of Ukraine. In 2007, the rate was 26 out of 1,000, whereas the national average was 16 out of 1,000. There are still millions of people living on contaminated land, so this story is far from over. Now that time has passed, the health effects have started to become clear and the full scope of what happened at Chernobyl can be more understood. I downloaded the 1986 to 2016 Chernobyl at 30 update from the World Health Organization and it was pretty telling to say the least. It's hard to determine exactly which thyroid cancers are due to the radiation in the area, but there is undoubtedly an increased risk. Food and water safety has also been a massive issue as well as the mental health of those in the area of the incident. Sophia, the woman who was 10 years old at the time and who now hears the Geiger counter in her nightmares, said that the effects of the radiation hit her after evacuation. She had scaly patches between her fingers and she learned she developed dermatitis, an autoimmune condition. Yes, it can be triggered by stress, but it was also a common effect of radiation exposure. Other sources have pointed to children with heart conditions brought on by contaminated food, extremely poor blood circulation, and worse. One source interviewed children at Ukraine's largest medical clinic for people living with the consequences of Chernobyl, and it reads, a girl named Melina, also 14, was too nervous to speak and fiddled with the sleeves of her dress. There was something on her mind. After a few minutes, she said she was going to go home the next day. Her doctor said she had two left kidneys, both twice the normal size. This was written in 2016, and it's hard to believe that much has changed since then. Other people that were children at the time said their experience with Chernobyl involved losing their baby teeth all at once, their lips and mouths turning black and being sick for a month and with constant fever. There are countless reports about the increase in thyroid cancer, leukemia, and more. Truly there is no shortage of this, but Chernobyl didn't just affect people, it changed the environment as well. One report about the environmental consequences of Chernobyl published in 2006 states that the plant and animal conditions changed rapidly in the months and the first few years after the incident before eventually stabilizing. During those early days, the areas closest to Chernobyl saw a rapid increase in mortality rates among plants and animals. Following that, the animals and plants in the area experienced genetic consequences. Some of the animals still living there are perhaps surprisingly house pets. To this day, hundreds of stray dogs still live around the plant, descendants of pets who were abandoned. 
Many dogs tried to chase after their owners, but soldiers pushed them away. Owners often left notes on their doors, begging officials to spare their pets' lives, but officials were ordered to kill as many as possible. Many dogs have been cleared for adoption. The available dogs are decontaminated, their fur is cleaned of any radioactive dust, and they're thoroughly examined. They pose no threat to anyone handling them, although many of the dogs in Chernobyl don't live very long, not past the age of four. The main contributor is actually the harsh Ukrainian winters, not the radiation. Sources confirm that the area around the former nuclear plant won't actually be habitable for humans for about 20,000 years. And I mean, maybe some technology will come around and change that, but as of right now, the area is not deemed safe. Scientists have found evidence of elevated levels of cataracts and albinism and lower rates of beneficial bacteria in the wildlife there as well, further proof of the long-term effects of radiation. Maybe one day humans will return there, but I think that if we do, it won't be in our lifetimes, not by a long shot. Now, the evacuated towns and eerily abandoned buildings are kind of a touristy thing, which is a little bit weird. One CNN article shows what looks like a tourist trap kind of shop with bears and gas masks being used as an aesthetic. It's become part of the phenomena of dark tourism, like the 9-11 Memorial and former concentration camps. Personally, I've always been a bit iffy about dark tourism. I'm not saying not to visit these places. They hold massive historical significance and it's an important way to remember the people who risked their lives and to see history with our own eyes. I know that for like myself and my Polish family, we will not go to Auschwitz. We will not visit there ever. I will never step foot there. And I'm perfectly okay with that. I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington DC and nearly had a fucking crying breakdown there. So that was enough for me. I just could really put off going to these types of really serious places where you should be very respectful of them and seeing people taking like smiling selfies. I just, it it doesn't make much sense to me, but people are now seeing Chernobyl as one of these dark tourism locations. As for how Chernobyl is depicted nowadays, it's been somewhat controversial. The HBO series Chernobyl has at times veered between caricature and folly, according to The New Yorker. Some say it's meant to be a mini-series and the writer has never wanted anyone to think their series is the whole truth. However, when tackling dark subjects like this, I'm of the mindset that it's better to be as accurate as possible and is true to the reality of the situation. If you're making up a movie about a nuclear accident, then you've got some liberty, you know, wiggle room to create as you please. But when you name the show Chernobyl and then you get stuff wrong in it, it's kind of a little bit odd. To this day, Chernobyl fascinates people. And even as of writing this, an article was released from the Biz Journal about the topic. It's not as if anything new has truly happened there, but Chernobyl still absolutely captivates people. Its impact is fascinating, but tragic. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end this episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, thank you for sticking around. Please consider subscribing, following, liking, all of that good stuff. Thank you for spending some of your time here with me today. I appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.